Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're wrapping up a section of 1 Corinthians that really began back in chapter 11, so we've been looking at this for several months. A section that deals with worship, how we worship our God, and how we build up the church through worship. We come to the very last section, last passage in this section of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. Please give your attention to God's word. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Back in the 1870s, there was a U.S. Army major named Henry Robert Martin. I mean, Henry Martin Robert, sorry. Henry, when you have three first names, it's hard to know which order they go in. Henry Martin Robert. Henry, major Henry Robert, or Henry Martin Robert. I'll get through this. He was asked to lead a meeting in his congregation. He was a Baptist, and in his Baptist church, he was, led, he was asked to lead a congregational meeting. And that meeting turned out to be a disaster. He was inexperienced as a leader. And the meeting was made up of a bunch of arguments that got out of control, debates that got out of control, and a bunch of long-winded speakers that dominated the floor on their soapbox. And so he came away from that meeting thoroughly frustrated and embarrassed because he was the leader of the meeting. And he made up his mind that he was never going to let that happen again. So he began studying. He started reading and asking around, trying to figure out, how do you lead a good meeting in an organization like a church? And he was very dismayed to find out that there weren't any real agreed-upon rules or practices for leading a meeting like that. So what he did is he took the parliamentary procedures that are used in the U.S. House of Representatives, and he simplified them and modified them to use for congregations or other organizations like that. How do you lead a meeting 
to make it productive, so that the conversations are productive, so the decision-making is productive. The result of all his study and work was published in 1876, and the title of it was Pocket Manual of Rules of Order for Deliberative Assemblies, or, as it is more popularly known today, Robert's Rules of Order. I'm sure that you've probably run across that, maybe not, but most of you probably run across Robert's Rules of Order. Been an invaluable guide ever since then, especially in church meetings. Our session uses a very simplified version of Robert's Rules. Our presbytery uses a more complex version of Robert's Rules, and our General Assembly leans heavily on Robert's Rules. When you have 1,300 commissioners at a General Assembly meeting for the PCA, you need to have rules like this so that conversations, debates can be carried out so that people don't dominate the conversation, don't hog the mic, so that deliberative decisions can be made effectively and efficiently. And so as much as we tend to, at times, if you hang around Presbyterian pastors, we'll complain about Robert's rules every now and then because it is frustrating to try to to understand them and apply them at times. But none of us would ever want to be, especially in one of these bigger meetings, without Robert's rules to guide us. Well, I was thinking about Robert's rules this week as I was studying this passage because what you have here at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 is Paul giving us Paul's rules of order for worship. He's seeking to give some practical ways for this Corinthian church to have a more organized and orderly, structured, reasonable, and effective worship service. As we have seen that, as we've been working through these last three chapters, the worship in Corinth was a mess. It was chaotic. It was disorderly to the point where it was actually detrimental to the spiritual health of the congregation and detrimental to the health of the individual Christians involved in that church. Do you remember what we, this is, a, this is a, a, a harsh verse that Paul gives back in chapter 11, verse 17. This is what he said to the Corinthians about their church. He said, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. I hope that no leader can ever say that about our church. But that's the state that things had gotten into in Corinth, that when they gathered together for worship, that it actually was detrimental to the life and vitality, spiritual health of that congregation. We've seen as we've worked through chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 that there were several issues that were causing the problems. Back in chapter 11, we saw that some of the women in the church were causing a distraction because they were refusing to wear head coverings, which in that culture was a symbol of submission to the husband. And their refusal to wear the head coverings was actually a bad witness for the church to the community. And so Paul addresses that in chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, he dealt with the fact that that their communion services were messed up. That they combined them with what they called the first century their agape feast, their fellowship meals. And so they'd have a fellowship meal, and as a part of that, they would also have communion, the Lord's Supper. But... They were being so gluttonous, especially the, the rich and the, and the influential were being so gluttonous, they were eating the best of the food and not leaving enough for the poor people. And so they're actually not only offending the poor people and giving a bad witness in that regard, but they're actually militating against the very purpose of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul addressed those serious issues in chapter 11. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, what he deals with was the actual order of service, the liturgy, the things they were doing in their worship service that was causing all the chaos and all the problem. And as we've seen, 
they were actually, one of the biggest problems is they were using the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which were tools that the Holy Spirit gave to the church, some unique tools that he gave to the church in the first century, in order to strengthen the church, to build up the church. But they are actually using those gifts of the Spirit in a selfish, self-centered way and actually in divisive ways that were harming the church. As we have seen, they had an unhealthy fascination with some of the miraculous gifts that were operating in the first century, especially with the gift of speaking in tongues, that ability that the Spirit gave to some in the first century to speak in a language that they had never learned so that they could communicate the gospel to those of of other languages. And they were using that gift in a selfish way. They were giving it to boast about their own spirituality. They weren't caring if there were interpreters around to interpret it so that others could hear the message. And they were totally misusing the gift. And we've been seeing how Paul's dealt with that in several ways in chapters 12, 13, and 14. It seems as though they were even confusing the genuine gift of the Holy Spirit with what some of the pagans were doing in their their, uh, ecstatic, frantic, mindless, gibberish worship. And so they were even incorporating some of that into their worship. And so Paul is addressing this, but he finally gets to the end of the section. He spends chapter 13 laying down the principle of love, that all that we do needs to be motivated by love for God and love for each other, and so they, he's saying to them, you need to apply this to your worship. And you need, and how many times has he said it in these last several chapters? Everything you do in worship needs to be for the building up of one another. That you are to have a servant's heart when you come to worship. That you are to come to build up the church. And he's talked about how to do that. But now he gets into some very practical rules. And we're talking about rules here at the end of chapter 14. Rules for worship that Paul lays down to help this out-of-control church this selfish, prideful church, get back on track so that their worship can become beneficial, so that it can build up instead of tearing down. If you combine two statements in this passage, I think you get the main point. Take a phrase from verse 26, the first verse that we read, and combine it with a phrase from the last verse, verse 40 that we read, I think you get Paul's main point for this passage. He says in verse 26, let all things be done for building up. Again, he repeats that theme through the whole section. Let all things be done for building up. And then he ends in verse 40 with a summary of this last section by saying, all things should be done decently and in order. Decently and in order. Now, I know that for some of you that that phrase, decently in order, is a synonym for Presbyterian. (laughs) But that's not true. It's not a synonym for Presbyterian. It is to be expected of all the churches. That's the point that Paul's making in this section. All churches should do things decently and in order so that the worship can build up the church. We saw back in verse 20, 20, the passage we looked at last week, Paul said that the Corinthians needed to stop being childish. They needed to grow up. They needed to become mature. And their worship needed to reflect that grown-up, mature perspective. And you know in your own life that as a child, you didn't have a lot of organization to your life. You loved being spontaneous. You did whatever you wanted to do. You went wherever you wanted to go. You didn't care too much about how it affected people around you. That's what it means to be childish. Well, in spiritual terms, Paul's saying, you need, just like you need structure and discipline and organization to grow up in your own your own personal maturity, the church needs discipline and structure and organization and orderliness so that it can effectively do what God has called it to do, and that applies even to worship. And that's what we see in this section. 
Paul begins by actually affirming something that they were doing that was right. One of the first points that he makes is that participatory worship is what edifies believers. You want to build up? Then everybody needs to be involved. Everybody needs to be engaged when you come together for worship. In verse 26, he says, When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, he's just making an observation at that point, but it's interesting that he's actually affirming that, that that, that's a good thing, that when everybody comes together, everybody's bringing something to contribute to the worship service. We're going to see in this passage that his issue isn't that, that everyone's involved in the worship. His issue is how they are involved, that they're doing it in the wrong way. And so he's saying it's good that you all bring something to build up the body in worship. In this list of legitimate contributions to first century worship, he gives a list. In that list, he has hymns. He has someone giving a lesson on scripture. He has somebody giving a prophetic revelation. He has somebody speaking in tongues or giving an interpretation of tongues. He's not giving a prescribed liturgy. He's not including everything that the early church would have done in worship. But these are some things that particularly were issues in Corinth. He's listing examples. He doesn't mention prayer, although we know from the rest of Scripture that prayer is part of worship. He doesn't mention Scripture readings or testimonies or confessions of sin or confessions of faith. These are all things that we either see given by precept or example in Scripture about what the kinds of things we should be doing in worship. But he's just giving some examples. And he's saying it's good that you bring these contributions. In order for worship to be edifying, it needs to be engaging for everyone. And there is a great danger. This is where I think this does apply. There's a lot of these gifts that, don't, that aren't operative in the church today, the miraculous ones, like speaking in tongues or giving revelations. But the principle is still true that when you come, you are to be participating. You are to be engaged. You are the ones who are coming to worship. There's a great danger, and I think we have as much of a danger in the church today as we've ever had, of those who come to worship being passive, being an audience. And that's the danger of living in an entertainment-obsessed culture like we live in, is that you're used to sitting there and passively being a, either a critical or approving audience. And if you bring that mindset and that attitude to church, it's going to be detrimental to your experience in the church, and it's going to be detrimental to the body of believers. I mean, we're used to watching TV or watching movies or listening to concerts or watching sporting events. But when you come to worship, you have to have an entirely different mindset that you are coming. I mean, Richard, when he talks about prayer, he keeps emphasizing that when he prays, you're praying. You're not critiquing his prayer. You're not, you're not listening. You are praying with him. He is leading in prayer. That's the way every element of worship is. Churches have tended to fall into this worldly mindset that the pastor and the musicians and everybody who's up front, they're the performers and the people sitting in the pews are the audience. And that is dangerous, a dangerous mentality, and it actually destroys the concept of what worship is. Now, maybe you've heard people react to this and say, you know, the way we should think about it is that actually the congregation are the performers and God is the audience. And there's some truth, and there's an element of truth in that. Well, I like the fact that that emphasizes that you are the ones doing the work of worship. You're the ones who are, are energized and engaged and, and participating in worship. But the bad 
side of that analogy is that it makes God out to be the, the one who's benefited by it, that he's the one that, that is the one who receives in worship. Let me make it clear to you, God does not need your worship. God does not depend upon anything outside of himself. He doesn't need your worship. What, it, you're the one who needs worship. You're the one who needs to be engaged. You're the one who needs to be participating in worship. It's something, it's, it's, at the core of your being, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you need to worship. That is to be your greatest pleasure, your greatest satisfaction in life. And so, worship is to be precipitatory, that you are to be participating in the act of worship. Worship is God's people singing, praying, confessing sin, confessing faith, giving testimonies, serving one another communion, encouraging one another with scripture. That's how Paul describes it in Colossians 3, verse 16, when he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what worship looks like. And so I ask you the question, first of all, how engaged are you this morning in worship? Or typically, when you sit in worship, are you engaged? Are you participating? Or are you sitting back like a passive audience member critiquing or just listening? Well, having affirmed the fact that they are all engaged, that are all, that's a good thing they were doing. Everybody was participating. Now he starts to speak correctively. Now, let me, now he says, baby, let me talk about how you're participating because you're not doing it the right way and you're actually defeating the purpose in the way in which you're participating in worship. And so the second point he makes is that it's organized worship that helps edify believers. Now, I know it's not exciting in a sermon to talk about organization. I'm not a highly administrative person, but it's interesting to me that Paul is seeking to, to instill within these believers a sense that when they come together to do worship, they need to do it in an orderly, rational, organized way. Just like Robert's Rules helps meetings to be effective and to fulfill their purpose, so does organization and order in worship do the same thing. The problems in Corinth centered around this selfish abuse of the gift of speaking in tongues, and they were devaluing the value of prophecy, which was clearly speaking the word of God to people, whether by revelation or by exposition of what God had already revealed. And so in verses 27 and 28, Paul begins to give some specific rules to the church in Corinth to follow. And the first rules he gives applies to speaking in tongues. He says only two or at most three should speak. So in other words, shouldn't, now he's already made the point, not everybody has the gift of speaking in tongues, only a few did. But he says you should limit it. By limiting the use of the gift, you're actually going to make it more effective. So he says only two or three should be allowed to speak in tongues in the service. And then he says each in turn. And this is one of the biggest problems that we've seen over and over in these chapters is that they were speaking in tongues at the same time. It was chaotic. It was a mess. Everybody was talking all at once and nobody was understanding what was being said because it was all being spoken in tongues. And Paul says that's not worship. That's chaos. That's a mess. It's not worship. Under no circumstances should two people be speaking at once because worship is to be organized, orderly, rational, clear, intelligible. And then, as he has said several times before, let someone interpret. We're not to allow someone to speak in tongues in a language, a known language that they had not learned as a, by a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. They were not to do it if, there was, if that person himself or if somebody else was not able to interpret it so that 
the whole congregation could know what was being said. And if a speaker couldn't interpret and no one else could interpret, then the speaker was not to speak. That's what Paul says. So that's how he regulates that use of the gift of tongues. In verses 29 to 31, he goes to talk about prophecy. And he gives some similar rules about, rules about how the gift of prophecy was used. Now, let me remind you what we said about prophecy. Prophecy in the New Testament means several different aspects of the one gift. We tend to think of prophecy, if, you were to, if I were to say prophecy to you just out of the blue, you would think of something that's predicting the future. But it's interesting that when the New Testament talks about the gift of prophecy, it rarely means predicting some event in the future. Matter of fact, there's only two or three examples in the New Testament of predicting the future of someone who's not an apostle. And so if we're talking about a non-apostolic believer who's given the gift of prophecy. Agabus is the only one that comes to mind at the moment who actually gave a prediction of future events. He predicted a famine and he predicted Paul's imprisonment in Rome. That was predictive prophecy. But largely, when the New Testament talks about the gift of prophecy, either it's talking about a revelation given by God through the Holy Spirit to a believer to be shared with the body of believers, a revelation of truth that came from God through the prophet and was directly from God and was to be received, or it was what we would call the gift of prophecy today as it operates today, which is expositing, preaching and teaching what God has already revealed to be true. Now, that temporary gift of being able to reveal truth that is beyond Scripture ended once the apostles completed the Scriptures. But during the days of the apostles, when the New Testament was not yet complete, you had lesser prophets. They weren't apostles. And this is where I need to take a moment to explain. The the prophets, little p prophets, that were given the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, they were not on the same level as the apostles. When the apostles said, thus saith the Lord... The churches were expected to accept it as, as equal authority with Scripture. We've seen that many times. Matter of fact, at the very end of this chapter, Paul says, you should hear what I am telling you as the commands of the Lord. That's an apostolic statement. No one but a New Testament apostle or an Old Testament prophet like Isaiah had the authority to say, this is what God says, and you need to treat it as though it came from the very mouth of God. Only apostles had that authority. It's interesting when they talk about the gift of prophecy, though. Little p prophets that weren't apostles in the early church, whenever they said, the Lord has given me this message for you, that message was to be tested. It had to be weighed. Notice that? That's the second rule that Paul gives, that this, the prophecy needs to be weighed by others. The, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast to what is good. So if someone claimed to be, have the gift of prophecy and to give a message from God, it was to be weighed, it was to be tested, to use the language of Thessalonians. Tested by what? How did you know what was good? How did you know what was wrong? Well, by what God had already revealed through the Old Testament prophets, through the Old Testament writings, and the apostles. That was the absolute standard of truth. So it was the case that somebody might claim to have the gift of prophecy. How did you know if it was true or not? Well, they couldn't reveal anything that wasn't consistent with what the Old Testament or the apostles had taught. That's how a prophecy worked in the first century. And so they were to test every claim to prophecy and hold fast to what was good according to the standard of Scripture and apostolic teaching. And then Paul gives a third rule 
which is kind of interesting. He's, he gives a rule that the, the prophets were allowed to, inter, to interrupt each other. Do you notice that? He says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. In other words, if somebody said, I have a prophecy, I have a message from the Lord to give you, whether it be from revealed scripture or something that has been revealed to him, as that prophecy is given, it's interesting that, if, that a prophet was able to stand up and say, wait, I have something to say. And the first speaker was supposed to stop speaking. Now, that sounds chaotic to me. That sounds like a mess to me. But most commentators that I read said that's probably a a guard and a protection against long-winded speakers. You know what it's like when somebody gets uh, gets on a, on, the, on their uh, soapbox in the middle. You know, they go, "I've got I've got this understanding of the Word of God. I got to share with you." And they go on and on and on. Paul, you know, we have that in Robert's Rules. In Robert's Rules, you can say point of order, and you can interrupt a speaker in order to make the bring the rules into play to, to bring speeches under control. There are limits to speeches under Robert's Rules. Even in General Assembly, when we have speeches on the floor, somebody gets behind the mic before 1,300 commissioners at the floor, if they start to hog the mic, the red light then will go off and they have to stop speaking because their time is up. They put limits on speakers, and they think that's what Paul is putting in place here. The point that we're getting at is that, you know, it's interesting that Paul says in verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words... When God gives a gift, you still remain in control of the use of that gift. So if you receive the gift of speaking in tongues, if you give, receive the gift of, of prophecy, it's under your control. If somebody interrupts you, you can stop. If it's time for your speech to be done, you can wrap it up. It's under your control. That's how it's different from the pagan religions. When the pagan religions said that, you know, that they were filled with whatever spirit they claimed to be filled with, they lost control. They went into trances. They went into frantic states. They, lost, they, they, they weren't able to control their responses. Paul's saying that's not the way the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works through your mind, through your heart, through your discipline, through your organization. That's how the Holy Spirit works. How does this apply to our church when we don't have some of these miraculous gifts still operating? How does it apply? Well, worship needs to be orderly. There is an order of worship. That's what your, your bulletin has in it. That's, that's a liturgy. That's organization. And you guys have no idea how many hours are poured into that order of service every week by multiple people, musicians, pastors, administrative people, to try to produce an orderly service so that the truth can be presented in a clear, intelligible, understandable way so that you can respond to the presentation of truth with worship. Because that's how God works. So worship that builds up is participatory and it's orderly. Which brings us to the last point that Paul makes, is that lawful worship is worship that helps to edify believers. Let me take you down to verse 36 for a second. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul is making one of the most strongest, most profound statements of authority that he ever makes in the whole New Testament right there. He's saying... I am giving you rules. These are from the Lord. You need to obey what I have told you just as you would obey the Lord himself. 
And that's something that we need to consider that when we come to worship, that there are rules that govern our worship. There are laws that govern our worship. We talk, we talk about worship, we talk about what do you like? What, what do you prefer in worship? What do you enjoy doing in worship? What kind of worship do you like? It's really not what it's about ultimately. It's about what has God designed worship to look like. It's all about God's will when it comes to how worship is to be done. Now, I know some of you think I skipped verses 34 and 35. (laughs) I have resisted the temptation to do that because this is one of the rules that Paul felt was very important to give to the church in Corinth to make sure that their worship was pleasing to God and edifying to one another. And so he says in verse 33, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Don't skip lightly over the first phrase there. As in all the churches. He's not dealing with some localized uh, cultural issue that was going on in Corinth. He's trying to bring the practice of worship in the church in Corinth in line with what all of the churches throughout all the kingdom of God and all of the Roman Empire, all the churches were practicing. He's trying to bring Corinth into line with all the other churches. This is a universal rule that he's talking about. The women should keep silent in the churches. Now I understand, and let me preface it by saying I understand, this is probably one of the most unpopular teachings that a biblical church has and holds to in this day and age. And it is carried out in the worship of the church. So it's public. It's right out there for the world to see. It's a hard teaching. It's hard in a culture where we're not even allowed to notice what gender a person is or to assign a gender to a person or to make any distinction between genders of persons It's hard in a culture like that to talk about what God's rules are for roles that are assigned by him to the two different genders. I want to first of all say this is not a blanket statement about speaking in the church. Not many churches believe that women are not allowed to utter a word once they walk in the doors to gather for worship or for Sunday school or anything else. That's not what Paul's saying. Clearly it's not what he's saying. This is where we allow scripture to help us interpret scripture. Paul is writing very succinctly here. We go to the rest of scripture to get the context, to understand what kind of speaking in the church is he talking about. There's no indication at all in the New Testament that women weren't fully involved in the prayers, the singing, the reading of scripture. There's no indication that women weren't involved in contributing. Like I said, all of worship, everyone is to be participating in worship. But there's one kind of speaking that was Paul was concerned that it not be done in the, in the church by women. He's not talking about, interestingly, he's not even talking about prophesying, let alone praying, because we know back in chapter 11, verse 5, if you go back there, look at what he's, in that context, again, he's dealing with the head covering issue. The head covering issue dealt with submission of wives to their husbands. And Paul wasn't trying to make a universal rule that women should always wear head coverings, but he's dealing with the biblical principle that wives should submit to the spiritual leadership of their husbands. And so in that culture, to not wear a head covering meant that it rejected that principle. And Paul says you need to stand for that principle because it's a biblical principle. And what's noticed, if you notice that, that he says that those women were praying and prophesying. He didn't forbid them from praying and prophesying in the church. He forbid them to do it without a head covering because of the message it sent to that culture. 
Matter of fact, we know that women were prophets, these little p prophets in the New Testament. Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts had four daughters that were called prophets. They were prophetesses. We know in the Old Testament even there were little p prophets, prophetesses, women who were prophets. So revelations would come from God to women. So it's not speaking, even not even necessarily speaking a revelation of God that he's dealing with. Paul is referring to a specific kind of speaking in the church. And I think comparing scripture to scripture and looking at the immediate context here and what he's dealing with in Corinth, what did he just talk about? He talked about that prophecies, which we've already said women were allowed to to speak prophecies, that those prophecies need to be weighed. Who would do the weighing of the prophecies? Who would do the evaluation of what was being spoken as to whether it was consistent with the Old Testament and the teaching of the apostles? Obviously, that would be a role of the leadership of the church. That the leaders of the church are the one, you know, the elders of this church, the session of this church, determines what should be taught from the pulpit and in the classes. And so it's the authority position in the church that weighs what is being said in the church as to whether it's biblical or not, whether it is consistent with orthodox biblical Christian doctrine. And so it's the weighing of what was being said in the churches that women are not to be speaking. That's where Paul says, you are not to speak to that. That's not your role because of the role of women in submitting to their husbands. There is the principle of scripture that, and it's interesting how Paul, I want you to notice where Paul bases it. First of all, he says this is a rule for all the churches, and then notice how he bases it in the law. He says this, they should be in submission as the law said. And most agree that the law that he's referring to is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Where in the first five books of the Bible does it say that wives should submit to their husbands? Well, it's back in Genesis 2 where man and woman are created, where genders were created by God, and God, even though he made them equal in their being, equal in their essence, he assigned to them two different roles when it comes to the family and the church, that the men should be the spiritual leaders in the home and men should be spiritual leaders in the church. That's back in chapter 11. He's dealing with submission there in chapter 11 about the head coverings. Notice where he bases his instruction about submission being a legitimate rule of God. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Paul bases his assumption that that the wife should submit to the husband on the principle, and that that should be reflected in the broader life of the church based on the creation principle, the creation role that God gave to the husband to be the spiritual leader and the wife to be the complementary helper who submits to his leadership, and that, again, you've got to get into the whole idea of what leadership is in Scripture. It's not about getting your way. It's about serving those that you're responsible for. That's what Paul is alluding to, that original intention of God in creation. Even if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's the place where, God, where Paul talks most specifically about male authority in the church, and listen to how he bases, where he bases that principle. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 11, he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Again, he goes back to Genesis 2. The original intention of the roles that these equal, totally spiritually equal beings were to 
carry out in this world was that the husband is to be the leader and the men were to be the leader in the church. Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's God's intention. Why did he choose the man? I don't know. Women could do a better job in so many ways. Why did he choose the woman to submit? I don't know. Maybe a man could do that better in many ways too. But these are roles that God has assigned. And again, we're coming back to that point. It's about God's rules. The prophecies, the statements of what is true in a worship service needed to be weighed. Who would do the weighing? Well, those who are in authority. Notice that Paul gives an avenue for the wives, the women, to give input. They said, said, to go home and ask your husband. Talk about it with your husband. Discuss it with him. Don't challenge the authority in the church because you're not put in a place of authority. But dialogue with your spiritual leader and interact with the authorities of the church through your spiritual leader at home. It's how God has designed these authority positions to work. I understand that that's a very quick and incomplete defense of what we believe in the PCA and at Oakwood. And I understand that this is a very unpopular teaching in this culture. But I want you to understand it's about who makes the rules. That's what this whole section's about. Who makes the rules in worship? I don't make the rules. The elders here don't make the rules. The PCA leadership doesn't make the rules. God makes the rules. And I want you to understand that this isn't about sexism or discrimination. It it just pains me to think that I know some of you are probably out there thinking what a sexist he is. Because if you knew me personally, I hope if you had asked my wife, if you asked my daughters, they could tell you that I'm not sexist, that I honor and respect women as being spiritually equal to myself. But I understand that God has assigned different roles because that's what God's word has said. And I, I'm troubled by the teaching. And there are many times that I, I, I wish we could kind of set this aside because our culture hates it so much. But you can't set it aside because it's in God's word. It's part of God's original intention for the church, for the home. And to set it aside is to the detriment of the home and the church. And so... I want you to understand that as we stand for this principle, we're doing it because God's word is the ultimate authority in this church. God's word is the ultimate authority when it comes to worship. And so we are going to seek to abide by it as best we can. In the Protestant Reformation, they had to determine what's biblical worship because over the course of centuries, through the Middle Ages, They had allowed man's ideas and man's imaginations and the cultures around them to corrupt the worship of the church. And so when the reformers tried to reform all of life according to the principles of scripture, they had to come to worship and say, what should worship look like according to scripture? And they came up with what we now call the regular principle of worship. And our Westminster Confession of Faith defines the regular principle in this way. It says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men. That's exactly what Paul's saying in this passage. Edifying worship is lawful worship. And the laws come from God. And we need to conform to his will for the church. And when we do we will be blessed. So let me summarize the entire passage. And let me put together two verses again, not the same ones I did before. Actually, I'll keep verse 40, but let me go to verse 33. Verse 40 says, all things should be done decently in order. 
But back in verse 33, it says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Do you see how those two go together? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul's saying about to these Corinthian Christians, your worship services are confusing, chaotic, they're a mess. That does not reflect the God that we worship. There is a powerful principle for worship. Worship must reflect the character of God because he is the focus of the worship service. So if God is holy, 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 then there had better be an atmosphere and an attitude of holiness to the worship. If God is righteous, then there ought to be righteousness in the worship service. If God is full of mercy, then there needs to be mercy throughout the worship service. If God is orderly, if God is rational, if God is intelligible, then worship should reflect the very character of God. That's the kind of worship that will bring God's people, led by his spirit, to their knees, to glory in his goodness and his greatness. And so Paul would say to the Corinthian church, worship shouldn't be wild and confusing and chaotic. But he should also say to us Presbyterians, worship shouldn't be dry and boring and lifeless either. I think we all need to look. (laughs) We all need to look at how we worship and go back to Scripture. Sometimes plugging your ears to what the culture is screaming at you and look to Scripture and not only say, What is God decreed, but who is God? Who is this God that we approach through the blood of Christ shed at the cross? The high, high price that gave us this privilege of seeing his glory and singing his praises. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to reform your church. We know that there are things that we do in worship that we become blind to. We have huge blind spots in the way that we approach you in worship. I pray that these studies that we've done in 1 Corinthians have helped us to look at ourselves and to question how we do things. And even when we're right, our hearts are not right. Lord, I pray that you would show us our sin, bring us under conviction. And Lord, having been on our knees, may we look to the cross and find the pardon and forgiveness and grace and life that is offered there through our risen Lord Jesus Christ. May he more and more be clearly presented in all of our services of worship in this place. And may we have the joy of responding in thankfulness and awe and, th- and, 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 and just in, in humility, accepting and submitting to his will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.